0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy P. Wilson. Tracy, as you know, I recently uh, took a couple days off, sort of. I still did some work, but I I went to one of my very favorite cities, San Francisco. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, I go to San Francisco with some regularity and this has not happened to me before, but I noticed on this recent visit, one of the city's historical moments kept coming up in conversation in a variety of different places, like with our Lyft drivers or like someone would bring it up at dinner. And I was like, did somebody run an article? Um, And it also came up at the bed and breakfast where I like to stay when I'm in San Francisco, which is the Monte Cristo, which I'm in love with. Um, And that B&B has its own really fun history. It was a bordello and a saloon and then a speakeasy before it started its life as a hotel. But one of the interesting things about it and what had come up in conversation with one of the staff while I was eating breakfast was that it had been built in the 1870s, and it was one of the buildings that survived the 1906 earthquake and fires that destroyed so much of the city. Like, it came very close to this building, but it remained intact. And in 2001, previous hosts Sarah and Dublina did an episode called History's Unforgettable Fires. And on that episode, they talked about a handful of significant fire incidents, including the fire that ravaged San Francisco in 1906. But today I thought it might be worth giving this particular incident a little bit more attention because whenever you're doing one of those survey episodes, you can't get really in-depth on anything. The earthquake itself remains geologically significant in terms of resulting learnings, and we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, coming up. And the devastation that followed it really does serve as a terrifying example of just how quickly a really well-established city and its infrastructure can be completely leveled. And the city was so damaged by this whole series of events that Jack London wrote after all of the events we're talking about today, quote, surrender was complete, essentially like the city was just gone. And there is also an important story here about the city's immigrant population, specifically the residents of Chinatown, which had grown into a very well-established and very prosperous community by 1906. And we are going to get to all of that. But first, to set the stage, we're going to talk just a little bit about San Francisco's beginnings as a city.
1: In the spring of 1906, San Francisco had an estimated population of about 400,000 people, so it was a pretty bustling city. But like a lot of cities, uh, it did not start with a lot of planning. Of course, there were native people in the area long before any Europeans got there, But Lieutenant Jose Joaquin Moraga, who is Spanish, was working with Reverend Francisco Palou, and they're credited with establishing a military post at the tip of the San Francisco Peninsula in 1776. And over time, that little outpost evolved into the Presidio. William
0: Anthony Richardson, an Englishman, is cited as putting the first dwelling in the area, and that happened in 1835, so sometime after that initial military post. That dwelling, as it's sometimes referred to, was really just a simple tent. Uh, But a settlement kind of grew around Richardson's tent, and that settlement was known as Yerba Buena. And the U.S. government was already well aware of the potential importance of California, and specifically the Bay Area, because it is... Very good place uh, to do trade from. Because that same year that Richardson started his settlement, the U.S. was trying to buy that land from Mexico.
1: The United States gained control of Northern California 11 years later during the Mexican-American War. Yerba Buena was renamed San Francisco in early 1847. And then, of course, two years later, the coastal town was gripped by the gold rush. That led to a huge growth period as thousands of people relocated to the city in a very short amount of time hoping to strike it rich.
0: Yeah, that's come up on the show a number of times, just how quickly there was this huge population influx to San Francisco and the surrounding areas. And that haphazard nature of the city's growth meant that it was pretty organic in its structure. More to the point, there just really wasn't much in the way of city planning. So things like utilities and neighborhood layouts were developed over the years on the fly. And this was something that people recognized as risky. Uh, for example, if you listen to our episode on Levi Strauss a while back, who died several years before the events that we're talking about today, you might recall that he was already in his lifetime advocating for building regulations that would reduce the risk of fire spreading in the city if a fire broke out because they already recognized were kind of tightly packed and not really well planned out. Uh, so this was an issue that was being discussed among city and business leaders long before the precarious nature of the city's infrastructure was so deeply challenged and ultimately collapsed by the 1906 quake.
1: On the morning of April 18th, 1906, an event happened that lasted less than a minute but changed the city really forever. At 5.12 a.m., the earthquake started, and it was over at 5.13 the actual length of the quake is listed as 45 seconds to a minute depending on the source and where the report was coming from. The epicenter of the quake was offshore and shocks were felt as far north as the mid-Oregon coast all the way down to Los Angeles. And it also traveled inland all the way to Nevada. It's full length of the rupture, that's the area of slip on the Earth's crest, that's been determined to have been 296 miles or 477 kilometers. And the magnitude has been estimated at a number of different numbers from 7.7 to 8.3 on the Richter scale.
0: And there were immediate collapses of buildings throughout the city when this quake happened. The California Theater and Hotel on Bush Street lost structural integrity and its dome fell into the nearby fire station. It mortally wounded the fire chief engineer, Dennis T. Sullivan. He died several days later of his injuries. Another fire station on Howard Street also had part of a hotel collapse into it, killing fireman James O'Neill. And there were a lot of other fatalities as well as buildings went down, but losing fire personnel would prove to be a particularly devastating problem.
1: So the quake caused structural damage all through the city, but the situation became exponentially more grave immediately afterward. The city's gas lines had been ruptured, and that set off a series of fires. To make matters worse, San Francisco's water mains had also been seriously damaged in the quake, and that made the task of fighting the fire just that much more difficult, plus the city had lost a lot of firemen in the earthquake initially.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but Sullivan in particular was a particularly hard loss. Uh, Two fires started right after the quake, one south of Market and the other north of Market Street near the water. And the following day, two additional fires began, one on Hayes Valley and another in a restaurant. And wind conditions really helped these various fires spread to the west. And then from there, they like got a stronghold and they just kept spreading.
1: At 6.30 a.m. on the 18th, which was a little more than an hour after the quake started, All the troops from Fort Mason were requested to report to the mayor, Eugene Smits, immediately. Within about 30 minutes, Army soldiers were arriving at the Hall of Justice and were assigned patrol duties around the city to assess damage and to offer help.
0: Just as the troops were getting started with this effort, an aftershock hit at 8.14 a.m. And a lot of buildings that had remained standing after the main quake a few hours earlier had sustained significant structural damage and they collapsed in this aftershock. Then at 10 a.m., more troops arrived. These were coming from Fort McDowell on Angel Island.
1: The U.S. Navy cruiser, the USS Chicago, received word around the same time about the situation that was unfolding in San Francisco. It made its way to the city. This was the first use of a telegraph to communicate a natural disaster. The USS Chicago would become instrumental in the evacuation of the city's residents. And then the USS Preble made its way to the city, too, to offer medical assistance.
0: Fires continued to claim buildings throughout the city, including government buildings, the financial district, fire stations, and hospitals. As the fire spread, crews worked frantically to try to move people to safety and combat the blazes that were starting at this point all over the city.
1: Coming up, we are going to talk about a really pretty bad move that was made in an effort to combat the fires, and we'll get to that after we have a quick sponsor break.
0: In the afternoon of April 18th, so at this point several hours had passed since the quake and the fires were beginning, a decision was made which has come to be seen pretty clearly as one of the worst possible moves— The plan was to dynamite some buildings in the city to create a firebreak. So the idea was that if some buildings were destroyed before the fire got to them, they then could not catch fire and continue to spread the fire, and thus a barrier around the blaze would be created. This was actually an approach that the fire chief engineer, Dennis T. Sullivan, that we talked about earlier, had been an advocate of. He had been talking about this long before this incident happened as a way to potentially fight big fires, and he would have been the one to execute such an idea, but because he was dying, he could not. And there weren't other people on hand with his level of expertise. So proceeding without him and without a real understanding and knowledge of how to do this turned out to be disastrous.
1: Yeah, and this like this is not a technique that he was just making up. This is something that had been used in other historical fires, in some cases successfully.
0: Yeah, and he had done a lot of research about it to figure out how it would work in
1: their city. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, like, the the core idea of it was not the issue. The Army had provided the fire department with explosives, but the type of explosive that was provided was black gunpowder, and the novice use of those explosives did not really level the buildings as intended. It was more like it blew them apart, and it sent burning shrapnel through the air. That was in a city that was already engulfed in flame, with water nearly impossible to come by. It's easy to see how this really went wrong, In some cases, the soldiers who were tasked with facing the blaze took out buildings using artillery. These incorrect methods just kept being used while the city was burning. So as the firefighters and the soldiers retreated from the spreading flames, they kept trying to blow up the areas they had just left, not realizing that they were making the whole situation worse.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things where it's a directive given to people who don't have any training, so... It's not as though they understood right. why, like, oh, this, this is the wrong way to do this. Like, nobody really knew. They were really grasping at straws. And the fire made its way through Knob Hill and Chinatown, North Beach, and the Mission District as residents fled, often with nothing but the clothes that they wore. The dead that could be uh, collected that were not trapped in buildings, were brought to public squares and parks. Some were buried in those same spaces because there was just nowhere else to take them as the casualties mounted.
1: Charles B. Sedgwick, who was editor of the periodical The British Californian, wrote an account of his experience in the earthquake and fire in the 1906 American Builders Review, and his account is really fascinating.
0: He writes candidly about the severity of the destruction and his personal revelation that what was happening was a historic-level tragedy. He mentions, like, other historical moments where cities have been destroyed and kind of being very aware that that this was happening where he was. But he also writes this, quote, "...that night I climbed to the summit of Russian Hill to view the conflagration, and never shall I forget the site. It was weirdly beautiful." A thousand banners of flame were streaming in the cloudless sky from spires and domes and lofty roofs, the underseen being a sea of glowing gold and tumultuous but brilliant beyond anything I had ever seen or conceived of, and magnificent in irresistible power, its great flaming waves leaping upon or dashing against the strongest creations of man and obliterating them. Noise as of a hundred battles in progress with myriad giant guns in play told of the fierce, relentless destruction as towering buildings eaten loose, toppled, and fell or were lifted skyward by thundering dynamite to then scatter and drop, throwing up huge, fiery splashes from the burning sea.
1: But he also writes in this account that during the fires and even during the evacuation, most people seemed pretty upbeat and cheerful. They helped each other out as much as they could, This was almost undoubtedly because they were in shock and having to focus on the basic tasks of rescue and survival. And Sedgwick wrote, quote, few of the people who went through the San Francisco experience will ever again know fear, I think. He also wrote that in the aftermath, when the fires were finally put out, then the emotional crash came as people saw how much they really had lost.
0: But this is a different take on the situation than most accounts suggest. So other accounts describe the scene in San Francisco as completely chaotic, not this sort of oddly pleasant experience that Sedgwick had, with looting and other lawless behavior a primary concern. This was so worrying that the mayor issued the following proclamation on day one of the disaster. Quote, The federal troops, the members of the regular police force, and all special police officers have been authorized by me to kill any and all persons found engaged in looting or in the commission of any other crime. I have directed all the gas and electric lighting companies not to turn on gas or electricity until I order them to do so. You may therefore expect the city to remain in darkness for an indefinite time." I request all citizens to remain at home from darkness until daylight every night until order is restored. I warn all citizens of the danger of fire from damaged or destroyed chimneys, broken or leaking gas pipes or fixtures, or any like cause.
1: Law enforcement was so concerned that drunkenness would lead to violence that many saloon owners found their supply seized and destroyed. It's estimated that $30,000 worth of liquor was destroyed as this preemptive move to try to keep the peace. Later on, those saloon owners made claims for restitution to the government.
0: And by the time the fires were put out, which only happened after three days of the city burning, San Francisco was obviously not the city that it had been on April 18th before the earthquake. 508 city blocks covering 4.7 square miles had burned. More than 28,000 of the city's buildings had been destroyed by fire. More than 3,000 people had died. And of that population of 400,000 that we mentioned earlier... 250,000 were left homeless. There was an estimated $400 million worth of damage. You'll see various different numbers, some a little higher than that, uh, but that is 1906 value. That is not a number adjusted for modern equivalents.
1: The ferry building had been saved by the U.S. Navy, so ferries were able to get people out of the city, and the railroad suspended fare collection while they took people to other towns for refuge. A lot of people stayed and started cleanup as soon as they could return to their property. While this devastation led some to proclaim that San
0: Francisco was gone for good, that was obviously not the case. Uh, We mentioned San Francisco's founding and explosive and organic growth at the beginning of the episode. Because of its unplanned nature, of course, the city's infrastructure and layout had not really had much forethought.
1: In the aftermath of the devastation, plans were made to rebuild with a clearer and grander vision for the city. But government officials were feeling the need to prove their city's resilience, and they rushed a lot of this work. Also, things became mired in bribes and underhanded dealings during the process. That eventually led to a series of trials known as the San Francisco Graft Trials, which are outside of the scope of today's episode. But Holly assures me it will be a show in the future.
0: There's no way I can't do it. There's, like, shots fired in a courtroom. There's, like, a crazy argument. It's a really good story full of high drama and illicit behavior. But it is also because of the events of 1906 that the areas outside of San Francisco grew significantly, Oakland, Fremont, San Jose, and other areas all experienced population growth first as people moved there away from the fire, although San Jose had damage of its own. And then as the Bay Area rebuilt, more people moved there from outside that had not been there in the first place. And it, it really did have this large explosion of population again, but this time with a little more planning. Uh, but this growth came with its own problems. Uh, racism was pretty rampant. There were some areas that were very clear that they were not going to be welcoming to, for example, immigrants or people of color. Uh, so it wasn't as though everything was rebuilt in a, 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 a utopia where everybody was cool with each other. But it was a huge time of growth for the, the Bay Area and the cities surrounding San Francisco.
1: The other big thing to come out of this was a sudden focus on the scientific community on the San Andreas Fault System. The United States' first seismographs had been in use for less than 20 years, other countries around the globe had been researching the science of earthquakes, but outside of a pretty small group of researchers, this wasn't a significant area of study in the United States yet. The earthquake of 1906 changed that, though.
0: And to be clear, some of the seeming slowness in this space was because seismology, even abroad, was still in its very early stages. Uh, German scientist Alfred Wegener, who you are going to hear more about in coming episodes, uh, was still six years away from introducing the idea of continental drift. And the theory of plate tectonics wasn't developed until the 1960s. So even though other countries were working in earthquake study, everyone was still really in the very beginnings of this science.
1: Yeah, I, by total coincidence, am researching an episode on Alfred Begener right now (laughs) as we speak. Not literally while we're in the studio, but as soon as we're done, I'm getting back to it. So following this earthquake, UC Berkeley Geology Department head Andrew C. Lawson started amassing data, and he was named chair of the State Earthquake Investigation Commission. It was established by California Governor George C. Pardee. That commission published a full report after two years of work, and that's generally referred to as the Lawson Report. The report set the bar for scientific investigation and included work from 20 different scientists. It's a really thorough compilation of data, including maps and photos of the damage and measurements of the movement of the Earth around the San Andreas Fault.
0: Yeah, uh, as a a complete science sidebar, I will mention that where the epicenter was uh, determined by research has shifted a few times over the years as uh, our scientific knowledge has gotten a little bit more refined along the way. So... Uh, But really, with the Lawson Report, all of these ideas started and all of this research really began. And the report formed the basis of earthquake knowledge related to California, and it also informed future construction and scientific observational guidelines. So that meant that earthquake hazards were reduced because predictive modeling was developed as a consequence to warn people of impending quakes, and buildings were made to better withstand shaking. And it really all goes back to the scientific community really rallying right after this event.
1: Coming up, we'll talk about a very different topic, and that's how racist attitudes toward Chinatown played out in the aftermath of the 1906 quake. But first, we will pause and have another quick word from one of our sponsors.
0: In the wake of the earthquake and fire, the displaced population of Chinatown in particular faced a really harrowing situation. The whole city was in a bad state, right? People were displaced. More than half of the city had lost their homes. Water was very difficult to get, but Chinatown had a whole different problem. And we've talked on the show before about the Page Act of 1875 and the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, both of which were intended to stop immigration from China to the U.S. And as the initial swell of the gold rush's prosperity had ebbed, animosity toward immigrants had swelled, particularly Chinese people that were living in California, and San Francisco's Chinatown was viewed with suspicion and outright hostility.
1: This neighborhood was destroyed in the earthquake. An estimated 15,000 of its residents lost their homes in the disaster, It offered city officials this chance to try to push the residents of Chinatown out permanently and take over their neighborhood's real estate, which was really lucrative. Most of Chinatown's displaced population sought refuge in nearby Oakland. That also had its own well-established Chinatown, but the people that stayed behind were segregated away from other refugees at the Presidio. Meanwhile, all the other residents were allowed to return to their property immediately after the fire was extinguished.
0: Yeah, but those Chinese residents were not. They continued to be held. City officials wanted to keep the displaced residents away from their neighborhood to prevent rebuilding efforts in Chinatown. The city government established a general committee for the Chinese relocation with the intent to determine exactly what to do with this entire community of people that the city no longer wanted. And one possibility was to establish a new area for them outside the city limits. But even early on, it was recognized this was not the best idea because there was a lot of business done among the occupants of Chinatown as well as tourism, and that included taxes that the city desperately wanted to keep collecting. It was going to need that money as part of the rebuilding effort. And while this isn't in any way suggesting that racism was not an issue in all of this, there is an interesting thing that happens where there's a mentality shift that's noted. Uh, It came up in a paper that I was reading where this is the first time on record that people kind of acknowledge that instead of thinking that Chinese immigrants were hurting the economy, they were recognizing that they were a significant and important part of the city's financial well being.
1: That was something that Chinatown's residents already knew. And they weren't passively waiting to see what city officials would do, they immediately spoke out against what was happening. Through their relationships with the Protestant and Catholic churches, which offered spaces to gather, the residents of Chinatown got organized. Leaders from the Chinese community gave statements to the press that made it clear that they would fight efforts to relocate them and that they were, as a community, united in this stance.
0: On May 1st, 1906, the San Francisco Call ran an article. This contains some very outdated language in terms of how Chinese people were referred to, but it reported, quote, "...celestial landowners hold that they cannot be deprived of their rights. Fifty Chinese owners of property in Old Chinatown have decided to rebuild on the sites where their buildings were destroyed." Legal advisors of the Chinese, the Chinese Consul General, and the Vice Consul, King Aoyang, gave it as their opinion that the owners or lessees of land in Chinatown cannot be deprived of the right to rebuild if they so desired. It has been decided to resist any attempts of the authorities to compel the Chinese to establish themselves at Hunter's Point against the wishes of those who owned property in the old territory.
1: So throughout all this conflict, the Benevolent Six Companies, which you might see cited with a number of slightly different names, including the Chinese Six Companies, or by the name that it's known by today, which is Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association, that was vital to the organizational efforts. This group has its own complex and nuanced history, but by 1906, it was working essentially as an internal support and umbrella organization for the people of Chinatown. We should mention that the group had expanded outside of California, but their headquarters were still in San Francisco.
0: And the Benevolent Six Companies organization was able to leverage its position to reach out to the Chinese government. And as a result, a delegation of Chinese officials made a public statement and requested a meeting with Governor Party. And their statement began, uh, this is, is said in the point of view of the person giving the statement, quote, I have heard the report that the authorities intend to remove Chinatown, but I cannot believe it. America is a free country, and every man has a right to occupy land which he owns, provided that he makes no nuisance. The Chinese government owns the lot on which the Chinese Consulate of San Francisco formerly stood, and this site on Stockton Street will be used again. It is the intention of our government to build a new building on the property, paying strict attention to the new building regulations which may be framed."
1: While that statement was specifically about the consulate, the officials used their meeting with the governor to make the convincing case that Chinatown was a driver of significant tax revenue and trade. There was also a request that Chinese officials be allowed to enter the area of the Presidio while the city's Chinese refugees were being held under guard so those officials could administer aid the city of
0: San Francisco also started seeing more and more just how valuable the economic influence of its Chinese residents was. Some business owners just got tired of this whole situation and opted to leave the Bay Area and start over in new cities, often at the invitation of those cities. Delegates from Seattle and Portland had actually arrived in San Francisco to reach out to displaced Chinese business owners and offer them assistance if they wanted to move to their cities. That was a little bit scary for the uh, leadership of San Francisco, who realized they were clearly getting rid of something that other people saw as an asset. And though this caused a permanent dip in the Chinese population of the city, one that actually took decades to make up, the majority of Chinatown's residents really wanted more than anything to just continue their lives in San Francisco, which they considered their home at this point.
1: After the lobbying efforts, protests, and statements that San Francisco's Chinese community would not just accept relocation, as well as a serious realization about the fiscal value of keeping Chinatown inside the city's municipality, city officials finally relented and allowed the residents of Chinatown to go back to their neighborhood and start rebuilding. The new Chinatown, as most of the rebuilt San Francisco, was built with city planning at the forefront to make it better than before— A 1910 write-up with the San Francisco Call described the newly rebuilt Chinatown as, quote, barbarously gorgeous. Again, we're super not saying that racism toward the Chinese and other Asian communities was suddenly abandoned. I mean, the fact the word barbarously is right there before gorgeous nods to that. Um, Also, if you would like to, like, hear more about this rebuilding process, there's a great episode of 99% Invisible that's, like, specifically about how they redesigned Chinatown.
0: Yeah, Uh, it's also interesting. There are that entire article that calls it barbarously gorgeous. It's a weird series of praise and backhanded compliments where it's like, it's so beautiful and amazing. I hope it doesn't start to stink like it did before. Like, it's a really um, wow, strange, horrible, while they're, like, acknowledging how, like, a, what an astonishing and absolutely beautiful accomplishment it was in the rebuild. Like, they couldn't resist getting in some really gross, racist barbs along the way. Uh, yeah, it's a, again fascinating even while they acknowledge people's value they still had to like get in insults which is a very strange and dismaying thing to read um There is still information today that is surfacing about the fire and Chinatown specifically. In 2015, while construction was being done on the Muni light rail line from Chinatown to South Market, an archaeological excavation that was running concurrently discovered a number of industrial sewing machines that were manufactured in the late 19th century.
1: That find was right in front of today's Chinese American Citizens Alliance building on Stockton Street, and it offered insight into an area of the city that wasn't particularly well documented in 1906. Even things in Chinatown that were documented have been pretty elusive from a historical standpoint because the documentation of where things were was largely lost in the earthquake and the fires that followed. City Hall, for example, had burned to the ground, and with it went the census records and citizenship documentation.
0: Yeah, sorting that whole citizenship status situation out uh, was its own big mess. Uh, There are certainly um, some indications that some people took advantage of that situation and could just say, like, no, I was a citizen, but my records are burned. But also people that were citizens had no proof either. It was a very strange time. Um, But because this area was more than eight feet below the street where they found these sewing machines, that discovery indicated that there was probably a basement factory that existed on that site. And this meant that researchers could use that information to try to identify from what records still do exist the garment factory that had been there and hopefully eventually identify some of the workers that had been there uh, and thus create a little bit more robust historical record of the neighborhood and its citizens. And that's something that takes on considerable significance when you consider the treatment of the displaced Chinese population after the disaster. And as the city continues construction projects, finds like these are more and more difficult. And pre-1906 discoveries are uh, becoming ever more rare. But for Chinatown in particular, it's piecing together a, a big, big gap in their record. So it becomes more and more important. I don't know what the status is on the research into what building was there, and finding out who the people that worked in that factory were. I couldn't, uh, I did not manage to dig up more info on it. So I'm not sure what status that that research is at. But it's fascinating. I sure do love San Francisco's Chinatown.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, the eating I have done in San Francisco's Chinatown. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that uh, that ninety nine percent invisible episode I think is called It's Chinatown. It's from twenty eighteen I think. Yeah, um, and it's it talks about uh, how they designed that that Chinatown neighborhood and then how that influenced other cities' Chinatown. It's really interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, San Francisco's Chinatown is often uh, considered like. The original United States Chinatown uh, in a metro area, and so it it has been, you like said, very influential um, throughout our country and others, frankly. Uh, and again, oh, the food I have eaten there, and I just love it. It's it is a really beautiful part of the city. It makes me so happy just to walk around there. Um, I have two pieces of listener mail. One is about our Halloween episodes. Uh, and it comes from our listener Chip, who writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, on my list of favorite things about autumn and Halloween, up there with campfires, pumpkin pie, and frosty mornings are the Stuff You Missed in History Class Spooky History episodes. The Devil's Footprints of Devonshire and the Beast of Jevedon are my top favorites. Thank you for making the best season of the year even more enjoyable, and I hope this season is a very happy one for you and your family's happy Halloween. Even though we're past Halloween... Every day is Halloween in my heart, so I'm always <laughs> happy to, to read more. And thank you so much, Chip. I, too, uh, love all Halloween things. Like I said, every day is Halloween to me. Uh, our second postcard is from our listener, Katie, and it's just delightful. She writes, hi, Holly and Tracy. I was at the Wisconsin Historical Society's Historic Preservation Conference, and this postcard made me think of you. Thank you for all the work you do making history accessible. And I wanted to mention this postcard because the image on it is automobile suits for dogs. <laughs> what? <laughs> Which I love. It's super cute. It's basically... It's funny because it's a historical thing, but if you've ever known people with dogs, you might know that there are things called doggles, which are goggles made for dogs, mm-hmm. so that they can stick their heads out of car windows or ride inside cars, etc., without debris getting in their eyes. And that's essentially what most of these suits are based on. <laughs> They're like a little jacket for the dog with a pair of doggles. And one of the drawings, it's all sketch, obviously, uh, and one of the drawings actually looks like a cat, which cracks me up in a whole other way. Uh, So thank you, Katie, because that made me smile and cackle a little bit, uh, which is always great fun. If you would like to write to us, you can absolutely do that. Our email address is historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And you can visit our website, mistinhistory.com, to check out every episode that's ever existed, uh, as well as all of the new ones going forward. Uh, if you would like to subscribe to the show, that sounds like a grand idea to me. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you listen.